You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part five of a series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We'll pause our reading after verse 11 of Matthew chapter 4. Now, as we're continuing the story of Jesus, I've pointed out through this series so far that the life of Jesus follows the pattern of the story of Israel, beginning with the Exodus brought out of Egypt. Well, Jesus is brought out of Egypt by his his father, Joseph, or his adopted father, Joseph. And then uh, passing through the water in the last episode, we looked at chapter three, where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, And now Jesus goes into the desert, the wilderness to be tempted. Well, that's what happened to Israel, not for 40 days and 40 nights, as Jesus does, but for 40 years as they wandered in the desert. And at the end of the period of uh, 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter, the devil comes to him. And there are three temptations. And Jesus responds to each one of those temptations with a quotation from the Old Testament, not just from the Old Testament, but each one of his three quotations is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the uh, last book of Moses, the last of the, the first five books of the Old Testament. It Its name that comes from Greek, the name that we give it, is second, means second law, Deuteronomy, second law. In other words, not because God gave a different or a second law to the people, but he gave the law a second time through Moses at the end of their time traveling in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. And at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies and the leadership passes on to Joshua to lead the people into the land. So at the end of of this 40 day period, Jesus quotes from that book that was given at the end of the 40 year period that Israel experienced. So temptation uh, in the desert. What happened to Israel? Well, when Israel was journeying in the desert, despite the fact that God had redeemed them from Egypt, had delivered them through the Red Sea, had brought judgment on the gods of Egypt and on the Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, Israel grumbled. They were unfaithful to God. They complained. Even Moses himself became impatient. Uh, And that whole generation, with the exception of Joshua and um, Caleb, 
the two men who as spies into the land had faith in God, the, the rest of the people who were adults when they came out of of Egypt died in the desert, even Moses himself not allowed into the promised land. It was a new generation that received the law the second time in Deuteronomy. So Israel failed the test. Israel was unfaithful to God, not only for those 40 years in the desert, but sadly throughout the story of that nation, time and time again, wandering away from God, rejecting him, going after false gods, failing to fulfill the law that God had given. What about Jesus? If Jesus is the new Israel, a new beginning for God's people, will he stand the test? Well, we saw when Jesus was baptised at the end of Matthew 3 that God the Father declared, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus was sinless. There was nothing in him that displeased the Father, nothing with him that was out of line with God's will. But now the devil, presumably having seen what happened at the baptism, remember the devil is not omnipotent, omniscient, rather, he is not all-knowing. Uh, he must, uh, we can presume, be intrigued to know who this is. Is this another prophet? What does it mean that he's the Son of God? After all, in the Old Testament, the Son of God is used to describe kings in Israel. Is this just another king in David's line? But what does it mean that the Father, the Son and the Spirit are together? That Who is this? Well, the devil is determined, of course, as he always is, to destroy the good work of God. He is a, a liar and has been so from the beginning, Jesus says elsewhere. So the devil comes both to destroy this work of God, but perhaps also to know who this Jesus is. And he brings to him three temptations that may be significant. After all, in, in uh, Genesis 3, whenever um, the Adam and Eve sin, the very first sins, sin by eating the fruit that God had told them not to eat, comes in three aspects. It says that when Eve looked at the fruit, she saw that it was pleasing to the eye and it was good to eat, and it was desirable to give wisdom. It seemed that the appeal of the fruit was threefold. It was pleasing to look at. It, it, it would taste nice, and it would bring a good result. Now, of course, what Satan does, both in Genesis 3 uh, and consistently is to distort the word of God. You may remember, go and read it, if not in Genesis 3, that the serpent who we know is Satan, that becomes clear at the very end of the Bible, and the ancient serpent is, is Satan, the deceiver. But in the guise of that serpent, he comes and he, he, he says to Eve, uh, did God really say? He asks a question. Eve then misquotes what God said, and then the serpent says it, it's not true. He directly confronts and, uh, and contradicts the word of God. But his first step is not to directly contradict it. It's to ask a question. Questions can be innocent, of course. They can be very good tools to discover truth, but they can also be ways of opening up doubt, 
They can also be ways of undermining certainty, particularly when they're questions about what God has said. Did God really say that? And Eve, sadly, uh, seems to misquote. She goes beyond. She says God said that we shouldn't eat it or even touch it. Well, God didn't say they shouldn't touch it, whether that was an extra layer that Adam and Eve set to try and keep themselves away from it. It's a distortion. It's a distortion in the direction of making God, God sound more restrictive than he really is. And of course, Satan says, no, it's not true that you'll die if you eat the fruit. What will actually happen is you become like God um, uh, and effectively he's saying, you don't need God, you can do your own thing. Well, we see the same temptations time and time again in the way the devil works. By the way, there is another element of threefold temptation in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. There it says that uh, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Well, in other words, uh, temptation appeals to physical attitudes or sorry, physical appetites. The woman saw that the food would be good to eat. Our bodies have desires. We want to fulfill them. Jesus in the desert was hungry. Of course, he would be after 40 days of fasting. And in those moments of weakness, we feel that if we indulge a physical appetite, it'll, it'll ease our discomfort. That's how people begin to take drugs and stimulants and, and alcohol often because it, it, it dulls the pain. It fulfills a need. It's what draws people into sexual immorality and pornography use because uh, they feel there's that appetite. And if I give in to it, if I feed it, then it'll go away. Of course, the problem is those appetites often grow and, and we give the devil a foothold in our lives. The lust of the eyes, John, 1 John 2, 16 says, well, that's uh, about things that look pleasing to us. The woman saw that the fruit was good and, it, and that's a strong appeal to us, isn't it? The eyes see something, it's glittery, it's attractive. We want to go after it, it leads us astray. And then the pride of life, which is of course the promise of gain. That's what Satan said, if you eat this, you'll become like God. Well, I think as we look at the three temptations of Jesus, we'll see those same themes are there. Satan comes, first of all, and says, turn a stone into a loaf of bread. Of course, Jesus uh, was able to perform great miracles. He hasn't done that yet. But Satan knows that the servants of God are sometimes given power to do that. Moses certainly had been, uh, and Elijah too, and Elisha. So, so, so change that. I mean, you're hungry and... Uh, and you must want to eat, so take a stone and transform it. And Jesus doesn't do it. We never see Jesus using miracles for selfish gain or for his own need or frivolous, frivolously. He performs miracles as signs of greater truths. He does it for the benefits of others. When he feeds the 5,000, he, he does it that way. This This would just simply be a selfish act. It would be an act that is out of control. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting, again, as I, as I mentioned from Deuteronomy, this is from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Uh, and what Jesus is saying is he, 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 he can't just 
fulfill the appetites of his body, the lust of the flesh. He's got to be obedient to God. Not only in the sense that he won't break the law of God, but he will not do anything that is not in obedience to the voice of his Father. Jesus will only act as God commands. He's in constant communion with his Father. He's always doing the will of his Father, and his Father has not told him to do this. So why will Jesus not do this miracle when he does others? Well, yes, perhaps because it's simply for selfish gain, as I've suggested, but actually more fundamentally because the Father has not told him to do it. The Word of God guides us. Of course, it was the Word of God that Satan attacked in the garden. Is God's word true? Is it trustworthy? Is it for our good? And Jesus answers that resolutely in the words that God had given through Moses in Deuteronomy. We do not live simply by bread and more widely by our physical desires. We are not simply physical creatures. We are people in relationship to God, called to obedience to him, communicated to by God. God has revealed himself and his will to us. We must listen to God. The word of God is given to us in scripture. We're called to be obedient, those who are Christians. We must listen for the voice of our Father. Well, the devil tries another tactic. He takes him to the holy city, Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And now he, he goes as far as to quote the scriptures. He uh, says, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your stone or your foot against the stone. That's a quote from the Psalms, Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. Hasn't God promised to protect his people? Well, yes, of course he has. God has said that he will he will give his angels to guard us that that's true satan is taking a truth of god but he's distorting it you see those promises from god are promises to people who are acting obediently who are servants of god but what satan is saying is that you can turn god into your servant and so Jesus responds again, quoting from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 6, verse 16. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's not that human beings say, well, God is my underwriter. You know, he's the one who, who guarantees my life so I can just do what I like uh, and, and act foolishly. I mean, presumably this throwing down from the temple is not simply a, an act of of boldness to put God to the test. Presumably it would have been appealing because lots of people would have seen it in the crowded temple and, and Jesus would have made a splash and a mark and, and gathered a following very quickly. That, of course, is not the purpose of God. That's not the way that God is going to work through Jesus. It, it, that's going to be by by teaching over a period of time. It's going to be by dying, not by standing boldly in the limelight. God does not give his promises to us to set us free to live as we please. God calls us to be obedient to his word, to trust in him, to follow him and to trust that he will hold us securely as we do that. So no one should ever put God to the test or make a demand from God. No, we come and we surrender ourselves to him and trust in him. Jesus models that perfectly. 
It's not what people will see. It's not the eye, the lust of the eye, perhaps, is in view here. No, it's it's trusting in God and what is not seen. And again, the devil takes him, whether this is physically or just a, in a vision, to a high mountain. It was the temple before, now it's a high mountain. And he shows him the kingdoms of the world. Of course, there is no mountain high enough on earth. Uh, and because of the shape of the earth, you can't see all the kingdoms of the earth. So we must assume this is a, a vision. But he shows them their glory and their wealth. And he says, I'll give you all of this if you'll fall down and worship me. It's the most direct of the uh, temptations. Sorry, I, I should have said, I, I suggested that middle temptation was to do with the lust of the eyes. I think actually it's it's to do with power. It's to do with um, that idea of uh, what we gain because Jesus would have gained that following. So it's the pride of man, the pride of the flesh that's in view there. It's proud to put God to the test and, and Jesus would be proud to stand in that public place. This one now is the lust of the eyes showing Jesus everything, everything the world has to offer, trying to kindle desire in him for it that would lead him to take the shortcuts. Of course, Jesus' destiny was glory, but that glory would come not through surrendering to Satan and becoming like Satan. That glory will come through the cross, through sacrifice. And Jesus will not do it. He says, it's written that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 13 this time. Get away, Satan. That's not going to be the path of Jesus. He's not going to uh, go for the shortcut. He's certainly not going to compromise his service of God. Jesus stands firm under all three tests. He is sinless. He remains sinless. He is the faithful son of God, faithful in a way that Israel never could be, faithful in a way that no other human being could be under the same circumstances. 40 days of fasting, a moment of weakness on your own, nobody else to see, so easy to give in to those temptations. The lust of the flesh, the desires of the body, the lust of the eyes, the promise of wealth and worldly gain and glory, the pride of flesh that seeks then uh, to uh, get um, <clears throat> position and recognition. No, no, Jesus will not bend to any of these. And how often has your heart bent to them? How often has mine? This episode of Jesus' temptation reveals our sinfulness and his sinlessness. And yes, we can learn from Jesus. I've no doubt about that, about how do we respond to temptation. Many people have looked to this passage for that. They've said, well, we need to be grounded in the word of God. We can quote the word of God. We need to apply it accurately, not like Satan does. There's a warning, isn't there, for us that we can distort the word of God by taking a verse or even a promise of God out of context, misapplying it, um, making it serve our ends rather than uh, the ends of um, uh, uh, that God has in mind. All of those are things are true. We, we we must be careful not to distort the word of God. We must be faithful to it. We must resist those things that appeal to our sinful nature. We must seek the help of God, the spirit of God. Don't forget has anointed Jesus just prior to this at his baptism. 
And it's by the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit and the word of God together that we too can resist temptation. Although we might also add we shouldn't really find ourselves, if possible, in positions of temptation. We should uh, seek help from other people. Jesus doesn't need to do that because he is God incarnate. So we must be careful. This is not the, the ultimate guide to resisting temptation. There's more that could be said, particularly about support in community and accountability. Uh, Jesus is accountable, but only to his father. We can benefit from accountability to others. But uh, the, the key point of this passage is not so much to give us a guide as to how we can resist temptation, but to make us realise that Jesus alone can always consistently resist temptation and that we cannot. Jesus is living the life that we could not live, just as he will die the death that we deserved to die. It is in this moment and through his life, consistently as he remains sinless and consistently does the will of his Father, that we see the one person who can solve the problem of sin because he is sinless, the one human being who is also God incarnate, who can reconcile us to God because he is human, but he is sinless. The one who can begin a new people of God, the church, which uh, Matthew tells us Jesus spoke about, the church that, that is founded on him and, and in faith in him, trusting not in ourselves to save ourselves, to do what is right. This is where, uh, as we saw when, when John in chapter 3 uh, pronounced judgment on the Pharisees, there was a, an issue of hypocrisy. We need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not just talk about being righteous, but actually do what is right. But the message of the gospel and of Matthew's gospel is not telling us, so you need to make more effort to do that on your own. No, it is to say that your faith must be in Jesus, who can rescue you, forgive you for your sin, and in the baptism of the Spirit that he brings, who will enable you to live the life that God is calling you to live. So if we read about the temptation of Jesus and simply see him as our example, that's a mistake. We do need to put our trust in Jesus. We do need to learn from his example. We do need to follow his example in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we need Jesus as our saviour above all, our rescuer until we've been rescued from our sin by him. We can't learn to live a righteous life. So if we don't see that in this passage, we've missed the point. And then verse 11 says, Then the devil left him. Resist the devil and he will flee. It's a wonderful promise that's contained in the New Testament in, in, in more than one ways. That, that the devil has no power over the people of God. He had no power over Jesus. And as Jesus goes into his ministry, the evil spirits allied with the devil will flee whenever he uh, uh, brings healing to people. He, he, they, 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 they're subject to him. They cannot resist him. They can't fight back and say no when he tells them to leave a person's life. And when we resist the devil by the word of God and in the power of the spirit, the devil must flee. 
And that's a, a promise that we can hold to. It is possible to resist temptation. Where the devil's power is, is in the lies that he weaves. It's in the distortions of the word of God. It's in the false promises that he makes. Worship me and I'll give you this. We might ask the question, could Satan have fulfilled that? That's a bit of an academic question. The Bible does describe him as the prince of the power of the air, as the God of this age. Uh, and it seems that God has allowed Satan to have significant power in the world, even to this day. He's a defeated enemy through the cross of Jesus, but he still is at work like a, a roaring lion prowling, trying to devour people. He can still... Um, cause great damage. He can still give people great reward. He, he can give people power and position and, and, and possessions and, uh, and these things are his. Maybe not the whole world and not ultimately not in the final judgment, but he is uh, able to, to give uh, some reward to people. But of course, his power is limited because those things, the kingdoms of the world, do not belong to him ultimately. And, and he is already defeated. And the day is coming when the scriptures affirm that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. In one sense, they already are. Jesus is Lord of all. But there are still many lives in this world where he is not declared and recognized as such. And so... We need to proclaim this message that others will come to know him, to trust in him, to acknowledge him as Lord. So that on that day when the judgment that John the Baptist spoke of comes, their faith in him will hold them secure. Satan is a defeated enemy because Jesus defeated him. And this passage shows us that beautifully. The devil leaves and the angels come. Those angels that the devil in a distorted way had quoted from Psalms that would come to rescue Jesus, of course they would come. They come and they minister to him, whether they provide food for him, as they did, as an angel did for Elijah, uh, when Elijah was, was weary, twice the angel provided food for him, or whether it's simply bringing strength to his soul so that he can return to the place where he can get uh, food uh, it's a beautiful picture of his father's tender care through these supernatural natural messengers, these angelic beings that um, God will provide and the angels of God will provide for his people. We will find the strength from them to carry on. We don't have to give in to temptation, even in those weak moments when our eyes see something that looks so attractive, when our the desires of our body are craving for something that says it will give us fulfillment or at least ease the, the boredom or the pain. Just do that thing. Binge eat or or indulge your sexual appetite or watch that thing or or um, have that gossipy conversation. And of course, the pride that says these things will further us and make us bigger. Well, no, what we do is resist that. The devil flees and God sends his angels to strengthen, comfort and reassure us. I find it wonderful to think of the angels who had served God, the Son, who is the incarnate Lord Jesus. They had served him eternally in heaven. Now they serve him close up on earth and they still are active today because our Father loves us and he will strengthen us and he will provide for us.